0: Just a word of exhortation. We're um, well. First of all, we're we're going through the book of Luke. Okay, so we're doing a little timeout this week. Um, Brian's been um, teaching through Luke, and he and Kaylee and eight kids hopped in a van this morning, and they're heading up to Louisville, um, to the seminary where he's going to do some classes live there. And so pray for them as they're traveling. But we're going to pause in our study of Luke. And we're going to go to First John, um, where I have been studying, and we're going to we're, we're going to go there. But just a word of exhortation: if 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 you're here and you're not used to you don't bring a Bible, or you're not used to pulling out a Bible, maybe you use your phones. Well, let me exhort you to use a Bible. Bring the Bible with you. You know, there's something about that phone that just does not set well with me. Now, I've said this before when I've been up here. But a little secret, I'm standing at about four to five feet higher than you guys, and I can see every one of you. (laughs) And um, now normally if I'm sitting up here and I have my back to you, I don't see you, you know, and maybe I'm the distraction, but I can, who's ever up here teaching on Sunday morning, they can see you, they can see everything that you're doing, they can tell if you have a phone, and that phone is such a distraction, right? I know, I know you're using it, you've got scripture opening that phone, but you also got these little pings and these pongs and these little things that are just causing distractions. When you have God's word in front of you, there's no you've got a message. The only message we have is the message God's given us. Amen. That's what's in front of us. And I'll tell you, another thing, your children need to see you opening up God's word. They don't need to see you with a phone in your hand. So just a word, and see, I can do that because I'm not up here every Sunday morning. So I can make that encouragement. So I'm doing that on behalf of all the other guys who are up here and come up here um, to share God's Word. Uh, Again, our text is in 1 John. If you'll turn there, um, if you're not really comfortable in knowing where everything is, go to the end of the New Testament, go to Revelation. John also wrote that. Back up through Jude, and then you're right there in the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's how I do it. That's how I quickly get there. And go to 1st John. We'll be in chapter um, 2. So tur- turn to 1st John t- chapter 2. And before I read, let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Can we do that, please? Father, we are 100% dependent upon you, and we're dependent upon your Holy Spirit, um, Both to enable me to proclaim your word and also to open our hearts so we might receive your word. And so as we come and as we open your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds so we might see Jesus Christ and him alone. And for those of us who need encouragement, we pray that your word would bring us encouragement. For those of us who need conviction of sin, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. Thank you for your word and thank you for the person of Jesus Christ. It's because of him and him alone that we come together and we gather as a body to bring glory to him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. First John chapter two. Now I'm going to back up and I'm going to start with first John one one. And we're going to read up through chapter two of verse six. So it'll help provide context since we have since we haven't been teaching out of the out of the book of First John. I just want to provide a little context. So if you'll read with me, let's read from First John. And, and if you um, stick your finger in the Gospel of John, as I'm preaching, some of this some a lot of references that go back to the Gospel of John too. So you can always put your finger there when we go in there. This um, starting with verse one, that which was from the beginning and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. and By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought to walk in. In the same way in which he walked. Amen. Let me just give you a quick short review. Our primary passage is verses three through six. But just a, but just a quick summary. In the first couple of verses of John, um, 1 John chapter 1, John says, Jesus is the real thing. And it's evident, and that's evidenced by a multiple multitude of witnesses. He uses we, our, and us 13 times just in those, first, in those first six verses, first four verses. So it's the multitude of witnesses. And is that which we have seen and heard, John says, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be made complete. So he gives a reason. Whenever he sees so that you have purpose. This is the reason he's writing these things to these believers. He addresses them as my little children. He's writing to um, believers. Back in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, John gives his reason for the Gospel. His reason was, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That is in the Gospel he said, but these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Having been an eyewitness to the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he writes in this epistle as an encouragement um, to young, to believers um, he, that he addresses as my little children. Then um, in verses um, 5 uh, through 10, he um, Couple of, just a couple of points that I want to make just in review um, from the last time we looked at this. Um, God is light. He says that God is light. And we, and we identify truth, we define truth as anything that is consistent with the nature and the character of God. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute because God is absolute. And our fellowship with God is linked to our walk with God. John says this, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses from all sins. So John says, there's two things that come from walking in the light. One is fellowship, and then the other is the, is the cleansing of sin. And when we looked at this uh, last time, we looked at this; those both of those were in the present tense. This is an ongoing walk in our fellowship with Jesus Christ, and there's this ongoing cleansing. That takes um, place, and when the last time we looked at this, I pointed us back to John chapter thirteen, where Jesus is meeting with the disciples. This is in the upper room of the Last Supper, and he goes um, to wash their feet. And you remember what happened when happens when he approaches Peter. Peter goes, oh, "No, not you! Don't you know? Don't wash my feet! I mean, it's such a lowly thing for Christ to humble himself." to wash the feet of his disciples. And Peter says, not me, Lord. And Jesus says, well, then, if you're not going to let me wash your feet, I have nothing to do with me. And he says, oh, oh this is Peter, right? Oh, okay, wash my hands and my head. Just a whole bath, I'll take a whole bath. And Jesus reminds him, he says, no, you've had the bath. You just need your feet to be cleansed. And that's, that's the picture here that John's going back to. That's this ongoing cleansing that comes from walking in the light. And he says, and John says then here back in the epistle, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So plain and simple, if we live a life whereby we do not acknowledge sin in our life, we're walking in darkness. Because that's what light does. That's the whole... John's saying this is we walk in the light because it exposes sin. That's That's the job of light. It exposes sin. And then that sin, we confess. And so John says... If we confess our sins, and this is a verse that we all have memorized, right, or no? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here was the main point that we learned when we we looked at this last time. Confession doesn't restore fellowship. Confession is a byproduct of fellowship. That's what comes when you're walking in the light of God's Word. It exposes sin Sin, confession is an agreement with God. You say, oh, I agree with that sin, and you change that direction. So I remember when we were talking about this, I said, show me someone who has a habit of confessing sin, acknowledging sin in their life. I'll show you somebody who's walking in the light of God's Word. Show me somebody who doesn't make it a practice to confess sin. Well, we all sin against each other, right? So let's, just, let's just, just take Kim and I as an example. In our marriage, if we're not confessing that sin to one another, it means we're not walking in light, because that's what light does it exposes sin. And so we concluded that Jesus isn't waiting for our confession of sin in order to forgive us, because that was taken care of at the cross. The one who's been born of God. For the one who has been born of God, confession is not a prerequisite for forgiveness. When we looked at this, we saw that John shifted from the present tense to the aorist when he said to forgive us our sins. In other words, when we read that, we say if, and that if is when, it will happen. If we confess, this 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 is in the present tense, it's a continuous action. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Again, it's based upon God's character, not us. He's faithful and just. To forgive, and then John uses an aorist tense, which which means an event in time, event in time at the cross, when all of our sins, past, present, and future, were taken care of at the cross, and to cleanse us, and to cleanse us again, aorist tense, the bath. There was the bath. We had the bath, the cross, when our sins were forgiven of all unrighteousness. Um. Here's what, here's, and then I, I think I concluded with a word from um, Arthur Pink. He said, it's, and, and, I, and this really brings it home, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes a child of God from an empty professor of faith. Not the, it's not the absence of sin, it's not us trying to hide and act like, oh, we got everything's perfect in our life, right? It's not that. It's not, the absence of sin, it's, the, it's not the absence of really confession of sin. It, it's the grieving over it um, that distinguishes us from someone who just says, I am a believer to one who is a believer in Christ. And then in chapter 2, John writes, he, he, he writes, and, and, and this is what he says, Jesus is an advocate. Jesus is our advocate. And as our advocate, Jesus Christ proclaims the magnificence of his atoning work on the cross. For he alone is, is qualified as the sinless son of God. John identifies him as the righteous. And he's the complete satisfaction, the word propitiation you read there, complete satisfaction of the justice of God. God is completely satisfied in the work that Jesus Christ has done for us. It has nothing to do, we contribute nothing to our salvation. And we also said this when we are looking at it, we said we're part of a grand narrative that's bigger than ourselves, it's a narrative, it's a story, a redemptive story for all creation, for heaven and earth to see and to witness, and one that magnifies the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's just, from from Jesus is the real thing, to walking in a relationship with Christ, Jesus has paid it all. That's what John is telling us. And, and and, and his encouragement to, his, to these believers is to walk in fellowship with Christ. Now now we're going to go to our primary passage. And, and there are handouts. If you missed the handouts, there are some handouts that we put on tables for the kids. Um, some handouts. Um, if they're wondering, okay, where is he? Now we're going to look at our primary passage, which is really the, um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And I like the way Brian does this when he's when he's preaching, where he gives you kind of like, okay, here's the here's where I'm going, here's the main idea, here's what I'm trying to get get through. And so let me give that to you right now. Um, sometime in the middle of this week, Kim and I will be in bed, and I'll I'll roll over and I'll say to her, either in the morning or at night, I'll say, hey. So what was the main point of the message Sunday? All right. Sometimes she'll go, oh, let me think about that for a minute, and sometimes she'll she'll have it, but. Um, honey, this is so we'll all have it. Okay, so here's, here's, the, here's what I want to communicate this morning to you. A, jo- a, joyful obedience, a joyful obedience to the commands of God is an expression of the relationship we have in Christ. Okay? Let me say it another way. The commands of Christ are not rules imposed upon us, but they're a means of expression. Express the relationship we have with God. I don't know about you, but we live in a world that's got that completely the other way around. And we've got we are conditioned from the time we're young and in school and we're born that it's the commands that we have to obey if we want to achieve something. This this is just the opposite of that. The rules are not that which imposed upon us. It, it it's an expression of the relationship we have with God. Obedience does not lead to relationship. Okay? I'm just saying it again. Obedience does not lead to relationship. Because relationship, our relationship with Christ is not performance-based. It's not performance-based. Relationship leads to obedience. All right? That's hard. I mean, that's a simple truth, right? We're, we're all here like, yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense, makes sense. But I think, I think we just struggle with that so many times in our walk, um, especially when the enemy attacks us in our minds. Um, and says you're not good enough. That's not going to work. It's 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 the a, a joyful obedience to the commands of God. Give public display of the character of God. That's the very purpose for which He created us, right? That's why He created us. So on this if for the few, for for the kids or the young people that have um, these notes, I actually, I, I'll read this passage just one more time. And notice that there's three times that John links relationship with our walk, with obedience, he says th- he, John says this, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. There's the relationship, if we keep His commandments. It's not an if, but it's a when, when we keep His commandments. Whoever says that I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God, there's the relationship. Is perfected. And by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in him, there's the relationship, ought, this is is like a necessary outcome, ought a necessary, so necessarily walk in the same manner in which Christ walked. So three times he repeats that same theme: that it's relationship that leads to obedience. First principle. And it's just real simple from the observation that, that John says, by this we know. The first principle, our faith, and our relationship with Christ is a public faith. It's a faith that can be observed by others. That's God's intention because that's what gives him glory. It's not, our, our Christian relationship is, is not, you know, just me and Jesus. It's, it's public. It's public. It's public. It's, it's, the evidences of our faith are for, are for the audience, um, not just on earth, but in the heavenly host as well. And although we can see the heart, although we cannot really see the heart of a man, only God can see that. The heart reveals the fruit that it produces. All right. So ask Logan to hand me. Logan, I asked Logan to bring an apple for me. So Logan, this is just this is an illustration. Can you toss it up here? I'll try to catch it. Um, um. I asked Logan to bring me an apple. Well, now where did this come from? Where would this come from? An apple tree, an apple tree. And um, Colton, does that look like an apple? How do you How do you know? How, how How do you know that came from an apple tree? Oh, there was a sign on it that said apple tree. I get it. And so um, that makes it an apple, I guess, right? The sign on there says apple tree, you you pull the fruit and you say, that's an apple. Well, you all know better than that, right? You do know better than that, right? Um, You know, the Bible tells us that you can know a fruit by all kinds of things, right? There's an apple, right? That's an apple. How do you know that's an apple? It looks like an apple. It smells like an apple, and it tastes like an apple. You know, what's interesting. Scripture says this in Matthew 5, 14. Jesus says this, you are the light of the world. It looks like an apple. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15, Paul, the apostle Paul says this, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. It smells like an apple. And then in Matthew 5.13, Christ says, you are the salt of the earth. Taste. Okay. That's the fruit of um, the Spirit working in our lives, the relationship and expression of the relationship. Principle number two. Obedience to the commands of Christ are expressions of who we are in Christ. Now, I've already kind of said that, but let's just put that down in a principle. Obedience to the commands of Christ are an expression of who we are in Christ. For those who are in Christ, the commands of God are not restrictive. They're expressive. Right? They're not restrictive. They're expressive. Because a true relationship with God finds expression in the commands of God. And if we understand this, if we really get this, it really changes a lot of things in our life and in our walk. Let's back up and let's just ask ourselves real quick, what's a commandment? What is a commandment? We hear all things about commandment. What's a commandment? I'll just give you a a definition. A commandment, here it is defined, is an authoritative direction or instruction to do something through speech or word or in writing. Through word or in writing, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a directive to do something. It can be stated in a positive. Honor your father and your mother. It can be expressed in a positive or it can be expressed in a negative. Don't do this, you know? Thou shalt not steal. Um, so two observations. Two observations. That's the definition. Let me make two observations about commands. Every command originates with an authority. It has origin. Every command originates with authority. It has origin. Take away the authority and what is the command? Just a suggestion or thought or something. It's it's not a command. It's no longer a command because it has no authority. Observation number two, every command reflects the identity or character of that authority. It has purpose. Okay? Okay. So every command has origin, has authority, has origin, and has purpose. It reflects the character of that authority. All right. So I learned a new game a couple weeks ago. Anybody play this game? Taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza. There. Look at that. Look at the hands over there. So that's, that's who taught me that. Who else? Anybody played this game? Look at this. All right. I learned this game a couple weeks ago. Now, when somebody, who, who does not know how to play this game? Good. All right. All right. Um, Connor, when somebody, when somebody says, if I, if, if, if I invite you over and say, hey, let's, come on, we're going to play a game. And I pull this game out and you're going like, taco cat goat cheese pizza. What's the first thing you say when somebody asks you to play a game that you have no familiarity with? <laughs> Teach me. Teach me what though. What do you ask about? What defines the game? The rules. The first. Qu- there's two questions you're going to ask. What's the objective, right? And that's you know that's purpose. What's the objective? What do we? When I pull these cards out, what are we doing? And what are the rules? Because the rules give it definition. It's true. Remember when you were a kid and you played the game for you kids. Remember you play a game and somebody doesn't go by the rules. What does that do to the game? It ruins it, right? It's no. In fact, it's no longer the game. What if, Connor? What if you call, What if you invited me over to your house and said, "Hey, you want to play a game?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'd love to play. I, just, I, get a game, let's play it." And I said, "Just get something that doesn't have any rules." What would you think? You'd be going. What, what kind of game is that? And maybe we call it chaos or randomness. Maybe there's something, But but there there is there is. Um, nothing there. You change the rules, you change the nature, and you change the identity of the game. Okay, so commands have origin. Commands have purpose. And what you believe about origin and purpose define your worldview. You live in a world that says there is no God. There is no origin. There is no purpose. In other words, no meaning in life other than no overriding purpose. Right? Just a little, uh, maybe purpose with a little p, a little m, just to satisfy myself. There is no truth. There is no truth with a big T. There is no absolute truth. There is is no morality. There is no right or wrong. And there is no hope. There is no destiny. And really that all started where? In the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the question that that was given to Adam and Eve was a question of obedience. Right? And the result was a separation, this is important, of the relationship from the rules. The enemy separated the relationship from the rules. But the serpent said, Genesis 3:4, to the woman, You will not surely die. There is no authority. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the promise of sin. It was true then and is true today. You can be your own God. You can make your own rules. You can define your own purpose. You can define your own morality and you can define your own destiny. That's a lie. That is a lie of the enemy. It was given, that lie was given to Eve and it's given to us. Every day we're tempted um, to sin. That's why there's chaos and brokenness in our world. The psalmist says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Turn on the news. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set um, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords, the rules, the commands from us. In the absence of a relationship with God, the commands of God are restrictive. You have to have relationship. You cannot be your own God and make your own rules. The Bible tells us that the reality is is defined by God because he is the source of life. What's the first command that's given in the Bible? The very first command. And God said, let there be light. That's the very first command. You know what John tells us here in our passage? Well, in 1 John 1.5, he says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. So does the command, let there be light, does it have authority? Yes. Does the command reflect the character of God? Yes, because God is light. The natural world was created by the spoken word of God, and the natural word is governed by the physical laws that God has established. Natural laws, even natural laws and commands reflect the character of God. You're familiar with Romans chapter 1. Paul says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Natural laws reflect the character of God. We also see the laws, the commands, and the laws of the Old Testament, right? There are commands in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. There are commands in the New Testament for the church of Christ, right? Are the the laws of the Old Testament bad? No, they're good. They express the character of God. Are we bound? Are we under those laws? No. Christ fulfilled that law. But the Old Testament, the commands and the laws of the Old Testament are not bad. There was a purpose to them. God gave them to the nation Israel to reflect what? His glory. To whom? To all the nations. Psalm 98 says this, "O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of all nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. The New Testament. The New Testament. Christ has fulfilled the law of the Old Testament and he came and he's, Christ has given us commands, right, to follow. First um, Peter. Peter says this in First Peter 2 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. That is you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclamation, it's a public, it's public. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and, ex- and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that, purpose, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we act in obedience to God's commands, we do what God designed us to do. We bring Him glory. That's why we were created. So you can see the connection. I'm trying to make that connection between relationship and rules. You can't have you. You cannot. You cannot have joyful obedience to those rules without that um, relationship. Because a command is an authoritative directive, we can't, really, we can't disconnect them. Um, John 15, uh, a, a, a passage you'll be familiar with. And I'm, I'm reading you a lot of verses. I have a lot of passages I know. That's God's word. That's what I want you to remember in here. John 15, I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. There it is again, our purpose that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Boy, it sounds so familiar to what John is saying in his epistle. Um, And so John in his epistle says, by this we know that we've come to know Him, that we have that relationship with Him if we keep His commandments. For those who are in Christ, the commands of God are not restrictive, they're not restrictive, but they are reflective or expressive because of the relationship they express or reflect the relationship we have um, in Christ. And so in our passage, again, John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says that I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But Whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. You got the connection now? You see it? He says it three times there, the connection between relationship and commands. All right, so what? So here's some application application. There's three possible responses we can have um, when it comes to how we respond to the commands of Christ. First one, and now I'm going to kind of tie back to the message that Brian, and this is what brought this to my mind when Brian was preaching three Sundays ago, and we were looking at the Pharisees in Luke chapter 6, right? Here's the first expression. Here's the first possible response to the commands of God. One is legalism. Legalism. Now, legalism comes in two forms. One, we're pretty familiar with one we don't think about a lot. Someone brought this to my attention, and, and um, I, I was really encouraged by that. One is the self-righteous legalist. That's one expression of legalism. One is self-condemning legalist. Right? The self-righteous, you know about the self-righteous legalist. They make all the rules, and if you want to be righteous, then you've got to follow these rules. you have the self-condemning person, oh, you know, I can never never gonna never gonna I, how could God love me I can never keep his commandments I mean this is so frustrating I'm always losing right self-condemning where's the focus on the rules on the commandments so you see the legalists whether it's this whether it's a self-righteous legalist or self or self-condemning legalist both are focused on the rules and they've separated the relationship from the rules. The self-righteous legalist, Brian reminded us, kind of twist the laws of God to maximize self-edification. Now, they neither understand the, the letter of the law nor the intent of the law. And for the legalists, the rules themselves, really, that's where all the importance is because their pursuit is self-exaltation, not God-exaltation. And so the relationship with the Lord is not necessary Jesus said in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures, and he was talking to the Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it's these that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse, this is what Christ said, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The legalist refuses the relationship. Their focus is on the commands. And I got to tell you, I lean, like my personality, we'll talk about the second one. But I kind of lean this way. I'm always having to pull back away from that legalistic kind of approach. I mean, it's just, and I, and I think part of it is we find it easier to love rules than to love people. Okay? Is it just me? I just find it easier because I think, because somehow I think with the, people are messy and imperfect, and I think the rules, well, fix them. Well, if you just do this, and you just do this, or you just do this, that's going to fix everything. It fixes nothing. It's all performance-based. All it does is drive people further away. It's the relationship in Christ that you need. Because the truth of the matter is, it's only a restored relationship with Christ that affects any change in a man's heart. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is just that. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not a set of commands. It's only in the restored relationship that we can take joy in obedience to the commands of Christ. And let me say this about the legalist too. The legalist is a lonely person, right? You, The legalist builds up these rules for self-glorification and they build up walls against both God and fellow man. Nobody likes to be around a legalist, right? It's a lonely place to be. Second response. So legalist one, both the self-righteous legalist and the self-condemning legalist. The second response, Brian used the word antinomianism. Now, people who go to seminary, they like to use words like eschatology, soteriology, antinomianism. I mean, think of it like this, anti-lawism, okay? Anti-lawism. That's that's kind of how we'll go with it. Um, um, just, as the, just as legalism is an expression of self-righteousness, um, so also anti-lawism is an expression of self-righteousness. Free to do as I please. This is kind of a self-righteous defiance is what it is. Nobody's going to tell me what to do or if we want to clothe it in, in in some, you know, kind of scriptural kind of make it look nice we just say, you know, I'm just free. The grace of God has freed me to live like I just live any way I want. Nothing could be further from the truth if there's the relationship, right? the the anti the anti law person they 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 just say no one can point out sin in my life. John says in this epistle, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We think we can live in a relationship. We think we can live in a relationship with Christ without being changed by Christ. That's what it is. We think, well, we can have that relationship, but He's not going to change me. So there's, there's no expression. We don't find, we don't find the, command, the, the anti-law person doesn't find the commands of God an opportunity to express who God is. Express His character for the glory of God. They reject it. And you know what? Just like legalism, anti-lawism leads to loneliness. It really leads to loneliness. You know people like that? They are lonely people. You know? No one tells me what to do. I'm just going to do everything myself. That's a tough person to be around. Well, the third response is the right response, okay? It's joyful obedience. That's the response we should have to the commands of God. Jesus lived in complete submission to the commands of God the Father because Jesus is God. And to violate even one of those laws would be to violate his own character. To be sure, Jesus refused to submit to the self-righteous traditions of the religious elite of his day. Yet he lived in complete submission and complete obedience to God the Father. For a true believer in Christ, for one who is walking in fellowship with God, living in obedience to the commands of Christ is a natural response to our new nature, to who we are in Christ. There's my favorite phrase in scripture in Christ, who we are in Christ. God's God's grace does not free us from his commandments. It frees us to live in an expression of his commandments. And it's through the atoning work of Christ on the cross that we are restored to that relationship. So we're changed by Christ. Christ. And now the laws of God, the commands of God are not restrictions for us, but they are expressions of who we are in Christ. And by this we know, John says, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I, do not know, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's a strong word. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's two more minutes of application. Let me ask you some application questions. And this you can talk about when you get home. You can talk about on Wednesday. Ask these questions. Here's some questions. The Bible's filled with commands. It is. How do you see the commands of Christ? How do you see those? Are they restrictive? Or are they reflective? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Parents, let me ask you this. I know Kim and I, ask, we ask ourselves this a lot, and we didn't do a, the greatest job at it, but parents, do you connect the rules in your house, the the, rule, the laws of God, with the character of God? Or do you simply, and this is where it's easy to fall, Do you simply just express the consequences of sin instead of connecting your child to the person of God, to the character of God? Yes, disobedience has consequences. But if all we do as parents is focus on the consequences, that's behavioral modification. There's no connection to the person of God. Why do we not lie? Well, there's a whole lot of consequences of lying. Negative things that happen, right? And we can make a list of those. But we don't lie because God is what? Truth. That's why we don't lie. And so every command that we have, we should think about as parents, we should think about a way to connect that with the character of God. So as they grow up, they see those commands as a reflection of the character of who God is. Question number two, does keeping the commands of Christ lead to a deeper relationship with Christ? Or does a closer relationship with Christ find its expression in a life lived in obedience to the commands of Christ? All right, I got got to say that one again. It's not a trick question, but but it's, you know, it's the old, is the tree an apple tree because it produces an apple? Or does it produce apples because it's an apple tree? So let me ask you the question. Does keeping the commands of Christ lead to a deeper relationship with Christ? Or does a closer relationship with Christ find its expression in life lived in obedience to Christ? Right? You got it? Because how we answer this question affects everything. Do you? And here's another question. Do you battle sin in your life with commands? Do you battle sins in your life with commands? Or do you battle sin in your life by drawing closer to Christ. If you've been listening this morning, you know the answer is, I battle the sin by drawing closer to Him. And when I draw closer to Him, that light shines, that sin in my life, and I agree with Him. And there is is a desire, a natural desire to want to change. And that comes from the relationship. You can't get those reversed. And we do that a lot. Do you drift towards legalism? Wanting to fix the brokenness and messiness of people with just a list of commands? Or do you drift towards anti-lawism, anti nomianism Being frustrated by unsuccessful attempts to keep a list of commands without first pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ. John says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Christ nice walked. Jesus said this. Jesus said, Jesus did not say, "Get your act together. Jesus said, "Come, follow me."